It's going to be one of those days. So, I forgot what I was going to say. Can you believe that? Oh, Easter. Easter. <laughs> Easter is the highest attended day on the calendar in the church calendar. It is the highest attended day. So it is the best time of the year to invite anybody and everybody who doesn't attend church on a regular basis to come. And there's a good chance that they will. And so it'll be a special service. We'll be focused as we normally are, but more specifically, we're going to be focused more on the gospel and talking to people about how to be saved and, and really for us celebrating the resurrection. And by the way, what prepares you really for that is Good Friday. So traditionally, Christians have taken the time on Friday to celebrate that time, to remember specifically the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And we call it good because if it were not for that, we would be without hope. We would be dead in our trespasses and sins we would remain and be under the wrath of God. That's how we call it Good Friday. A death occurred, a, a violent death. But it was a death that brought salvation to sinners. So I would encourage you, come. We don't have our own place. That's why we continue to go. We can't rent this place on Friday. So we're using our sending church, and we're going to go. If you've never been to a Good Friday service, come. If you've been to one, come. If you don't see me there, this isn't funny. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm going to be in the nursery, okay? I volunteered, believe it or not, to help with the kids. I want to feel a little bit of that abuse that our uh, people go through every day. That's my suffering for Jesus I'm going to experience on Good Friday. No, I'm kidding. But I am going to be in there, so you may not see me in the sanctuary, but please come, be there, and I'll try to capture you maybe after the service and say hi. All right, Romans chapter 1. Here we are in the book of Romans. So I don't think... I put down a page number. Anybody want to shoot me a page number? Romans chapter 1 in those blue Bibles. 939. Thank you, Ray. 939, if you're using one of those blue Bibles, that'll bring you to Romans chapter 1. Or if you have your own Bible, please turn there. Okay, so let me... We're going to now start to move through verses 7 through 13. But let me ask you a question. As a Christian which I'm making an assumption that most of you here identify yourselves as Christians. As a Christian, do you have a desire to become more like Christ? Okay. Good. That is, and let me, let me try to explain that too. That is to think, to think, to, to feel about things and and to respond to life as Jesus would. It's kind of what I mean, or particularly what I mean by having desire to be more and more like Christ. And if you said yes this morning, then I think this message and the following messages in the week to come, the weeks to come will be a blessing to you. If you said no, either out loud, I doubt you would do that, or in your heart, if you have no desire to be like Christ, then one of two things are true. You're not a Christian. That's a possibility. If you have no desire to be like Christ. Or you are uninformed or confused about the main purpose for which God sent his son to die for you. You're confused. Maybe you don't know. Paul speaks about it in speaking about the salvation of sinners by God in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this in verse 29 of that chapter. He says, For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined, which means to determine beforehand, he predestined them to be conformed to the image or likeness, could be another translation, of his son. The purpose for which God has saved us, okay, is not so that we could have big houses and nice cars and a successful life here on earth. I know some preachers say that. That's false. The main reason that God has saved us is so that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Commenting on that verse, one writer says this. Listen. In the simplest possible terms, God's eternal purpose for His people, those who who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who have a saving relationship with Him, His people, His main purpose is that we should become like Jesus. The transformation process begins here and now. It starts now, beloved, and it starts in our character and our conduct. And it happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, but but we'll be brought to completion only when Christ comes and we see him and our bodies become like Jesus' body, like the body of his in glory. So basically the writer is saying, listen, the process begins now in this life. That process by which God is transforming us, conforming us into the image or likeness of his son. You get the idea of image, right? When you look in the mirror, you see what? You see yourself. Yeah, you see yourself. You see an image. You see yourself. That's the idea that when we look in the mirror, we would see Jesus. Not that we would look like him physically, but that our characteristics would be like his. Our conduct would be like his. Our attitudes would be like his. Our thinking would be like his. One writer, or well, not one writer, the Apostle Paul makes a similar statement as he did in Romans 8.29, kind of parallel Philippians 1.6. He says, and I'm sure of this, I am sure of this, I am certain that he, God, who began a good work in you, he's speaking to Christians, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He began that good work, and he's continuing that good work. What's that good work, beloved? That good work is the work by which, through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside every believer, God is transforming us into the image of His beloved Son. Beloved, we have been saved by God, as I have already said, and I'm going to say it again, and this is all by way of introduction into this section of Scripture here, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that reality is seen in our lives through the power of the Spirit. When we imitate Jesus more and more in our character and in our conduct. With me so far? Last week at the end of the sermon, I was talking to you about Paul's passion and zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. His desire to make the Lord's unequaled significance known among all the nations, his desire to magnify the Lord's greatness among all the people. Okay, and then I asked you, are you like Paul? Are you like Paul? I added that people may say, well, hey, Jeremy, come on. That's the apostle Paul you're talking about. I mean, he's unique and he's special. How can you expect me to be like him? And, and he was unique and special, and he had a certain calling from God. But then I, I told you that the Apostle Paul said to the church, to Christians, he said this, imitate me. Twice, once in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, and, and once in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. You'll find that phrase, imitate me. But I want to come back to that now. Paul's exhortation is not just imitate me. But it includes this very important additional statement. Maybe you know it. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As I am of Christ. As I imitate Jesus Christ... As I become more and more like Christ, to the degree that I look like Christ in what I do and how I think and how I act and how I respond to life, you imitate that in my life. Beloved, Paul was the great man that he was, and he was a great man. Because he was a man that did not live in rebellion to God's declared will, but rather in submission to it. Listen to me. People are always asking, 
What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? Can I tell you what it is? To be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Worry about that one. Focus on that one. And all the other stuff will fit into place. We're worried about what car to buy or where to live or job to take. This one we know for sure. It is the will of God. It is His declared purpose that He saved us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Paul lived in submission to that declared will. And as a result of becoming like Jesus, as cooperating with the work of the Spirit that was happening in his life, listen, Paul's life made a significant impact for the Lord, beloved. A significant impact for the Lord. And you know what else? Paul's life, through the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it brought him true joy, true peace, true confidence, and real satisfaction that he otherwise would not have known. You want true joy, beloved? You want true peace? You want confidence? Not some fake confidence, but real confidence before the Lord? Then comply with God's declared will for your life. In the text before us today, we will see Paul model for us, live out before us, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. What it looks like to be like Christ. And he'll do that through the display of his selflessness. Of his selflessness. Do you remember Mark 10? You can write it down look at it later, 35 through 45. We went through that section many, many months ago. Jesus' disciples were having a discussion, if you want to call it that, really about a few of them, about wanting to sit in a particular place or be in a particular position of power with Jesus when his kingdom was established. Okay, Because they knew, they believed Jesus was the king, therefore the kingdom would come and the kingdom would be established, and they wanted a particular seat in that kingdom, a place of power. And and then the other disciples find out about this, that they're kind of jockeying for that position and they get frustrated, probably because they didn't ask first, right? And Jesus just kind of gives them a lesson. He says, you guys got it all wrong. You really got it all wrong. Because in my kingdom, the people that are the greatest are the servants. Are the servants. You want to be great? Be a servant. A slave even, he says, of all. Right? I'm sorry, but that's impossible without a spirit of selflessness. Right? Being great means, hey, look at me, and everyone comes and serves me. Everyone comes and and fulfills my desires. Everyone's there for me. But being a servant is the other way around. I am now here for everyone else. That's Jesus Christ, beloved. Remember, he said, listen, take me as my example. I didn't come to serve or be served. Forgive me. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I am the model. Complete and utter selflessness. Jesus Christ. And we'll see that here in Paul, in this section, seen really in his care and concern for others rather than just himself, beloved. I heard this a long time ago. Maybe you've heard it. People said, hey, you want joy? Okay, then remember this. J-O-Y. Jesus first. How many of you have heard this? A few of you. Jesus first, others second, and you last, right? Okay, it's simple, but it works, it works. Jesus first, other second, you last. I would just take you off the total list. I would just say, if you want joy, be Joe. Be Joe. Jesus and others. And you will be taken care of. You don't even have to worry. Jesus and others. That's the model. 
If we pay attention, beloved, if we pay attention as we move through this section of Scripture, I hope that we will learn from Paul what it looks like to imitate or be like Jesus. And I hope and pray that we, every single one of us, as I've been doing over this last week, would examine our lives in light of it, of Paul's example, and relying on the Spirit of God that indwells us, we would make the appropriate changes. We would repent. Tim talked about it this morning in that section of Scripture in Daniel. That we would repent, beloved. Hey, guess what? The Christian life is just one long life of repentance. It's saying, this is God's standard. This is what God wants from me. And God is good and perfectly righteous and all wise. So what he wants from me absolutely must be the best for me. That is not how I am living. I repent of how I am living, not as God wants. I turn to him and through the power of his spirit that dwells in me, I walk in that direction. Okay? That's what I hope for us. And by the way, that doesn't happen once. That happens over and over again. Over and over and over again. All right, let's look at the text, okay? Romans chapter 1, we'll read through it. Beginning in verse 7, reading through verse verse 13. And here's what struck me. I read this thing over and over and over again, just trying to to get into Paul's mind if I could. And and something stood out. And I'll, I'll call your attention to it. And it's what I think connects everything here together. It's why I'm talking about the selflessness of Paul or Paul's Christ likeness. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Just see that word? You? Watch how many times this pops up. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why, Paul? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention what? You. You. Always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to who? You some spiritual gift to strengthen who? You. Verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often attended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Just to give you a heads up, Paul is flat out other-centered. He is other-centered. He is other-focused, okay? And we're going to explore that this morning. We're going to consider, if you look in your bulletins, four selfless characteristics of the Apostle Paul that should be true of us as well. So that, real simple, we just talked about it, we would be in conformity, in alignment with God's will for our lives as Christians, which is to be conformed to the image or likeness of His Son. Those four things that popped out to me in this text, this otherness of Paul. First, his giving of thanks for others. Second, his constancy in prayer for others. Third, his longing to strengthen others. And fourth, his desire for the salvation of others. Now, before we camp out on the first point, and by the way, we're only going to cover the first point today, so don't panic. Don't panic. Because I have a long introduction here and I need to look at verse 7. And that's what we're going to do now before we look at verse 8 and the first point. Look back at the text, Romans 1, 7. Let's just talk about this real quick and then we'll dive in. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul began this letter in verse 1. As you remember, you can look back up at the text by introducing himself to those in the city of Rome or the capital there 
who had never personally met him. They never personally met Paul, but now they're receiving this long 16 chapters, that's how we have it divided up in our Bibles, letter from Paul. So Paul needs to tell them, hey, this is who I am. I am Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's how he starts off in verse 1. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And we talked about that. At the end of that introduction, instead of immediately identifying his readers and giving them his standard greeting, which is grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, was typical. If you look at Paul's letters in the New Testament, that's the pattern. Introduction, this is who I am. And then he identifies his readers, and then he gives them that standard greeting. Okay, That's what he typically did. But in the case with Romans, when he mentioned that he was set apart for the gospel of God, he stops. He stops. And he spends the next section there basically giving a brief summary of that gospel. He's like, listen, Romans is all about the gospel. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel, to proclaim it, to preach it, to defend it, to explain it. I have received it from Christ himself. And he says, that's what I've been set apart to do. And he just, he's like a kid. He just can't wait. He can't wait 16 chapters. He says, I got to tell you a little bit about that right now. And that's what he does. He gives really a summary there about the gospel of God. And that's what we've gone over the last couple of weeks. After he finished then his initial comments about the gospel of God that he'll lay out in detail as we move through the chapter, uh, the book of Romans. He returns now in verse 7, as would be typical in a letter, and he now addresses and identifies his readers. And he says this, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, or to put it another way, to all the Christians in Rome. Okay, that's, that's what he's saying. He's saying to all the Christians in Rome. And I say that because, and you should know that that's what he's saying, that's, what he's, that's who he's identifying to those who are beloved of God, and called to be saints, because it is Christians, those who have a real, genuine relationship with Christ, it is Christians who truly know and have personally experienced the everlasting and saving love of God, which Paul says is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.29. Okay? Or 8.39, forgive me. 8.39. So, Those are the ones who are beloved by God. Those are the ones who really know and have experienced and have the love of God because the love of God, according to Romans 8.39, is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and it is Christians who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen, Paul will come back to this. I just want to point this out. It's so awesome. He says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, I'm giving you a different translation, NIV. It says, Paul says he comes back to this topic of God's love for his people. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless or helpless, without any strength, at just the right time, Christ, he died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. He kind of gives some hypotheticals. You know, very rarely would that even possibly occur, or or for a good man, someone might even possibly dare to die if, if such a thing even existed, but God, He demonstrates His own love for us in this. This is how He showed it to us. While we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, neither good nor righteous, it's a contrast. We're none of those things. We're sinners, deserving of all of God's wrath. God demonstrated His love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, and that's really unbelievable, beloved. And that is why I think Paul just stops for a second and says, to all those in Rome, beloved by God. Paul will never get over this, and neither should you. Neither should you. You notice Paul doesn't say, to all those in Rome who love God. He doesn't say that. That's really not what's so amazing. Listen, John told us that we love God because he first loved us. And our love, beloved, you know what our love is like, right? It ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's high. Sometimes it's low. It's not consistent. I wish it were. What's amazing is God's love for us. 
I mean, it, it makes sense that we would love God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. But that God would love us? That is unbelievable. And his love for us is consistent, is faithful, never ebbs and flows. It is perfect. It is in Christ Jesus where that love is found and exists and remains and continues. So just Paul says, hey, to you, all you in Rome, beloved of God, hello. Think about that. And then he says, not only that, but he identifies them as those called to be saints. Now listen. The word saints, that word is a, t- a title that Paul repeatedly used to refer to, not just Paul, but the other apostles as well. He repeatedly used that title to refer to Christians. So you can see that in Romans 16, 15. You can also see that just as some, there's lots of examples, but just a few. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians 1, verse 1. He even refers to the Christians as he's identifying them when he writes those letters. He refers to them as saints. Now listen, it is not, I repeat, It is not a special designation for only a few people who supposedly do something special to earn that title. It is not that. It is not that. We do not and cannot achieve through what we have done sainthood. That's just not biblical, beloved. And if, and if any of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, certainly some of you do because you have a Catholic background. And then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sainthood is not something that is given to a person because of the good things they have done and to only a few. It is not. That is not the biblical pattern. Saints is a term that is used to identify every single Christian. Saints, beloved, is an adjective used for all genuine Christians, and its meaning is this, dedicated to God, holy. Dedicated to God, holy. To all those in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Listen to me. God, through Christ, has consecrated us. Big word. Set us apart. Okay? But you should know that word. Consecrated. It's a good word. He has set us apart to be his people, to live for him, to obey and serve him. Saints. And saints refers not to a a status that you and I have somehow earned, but a status that we have been given by God. And guess what? That That is only possible because the guilt of all of our sin has been blotted out, has been erased, has been obliterated through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And not only that, but you and I as Christians have been credited with, imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. We already talked about it this morning. We sung about it. That is why we can be given that title, saints. Let me point this out here. Let me, this one writer said something I think is good. God never goes to a sinner and tells him to try to attain sainthood. Okay, attain. Try to measure up. Try to accomplish it. Try to get it. Go after it, baby. Get the sainthood. He never does that. He picks us up out of the mud. That's what he does. Out of our mess out of all of our sin and our unrighteousness. He picks us up out of that. And he says, because of Jesus Christ, and through him he says, you are a saint. You are a saint. The writer goes on to say, we are not making believe. We're not pretending to be something we're not. We are holy. We are set apart. We have been consecrated to God and must live in accordance with, With our position. This is never attained by striving. By trying. But by taking possession of sainthood. And here's what he means. Remembering our position. And living in accordance with it. Remembering who we are. In Christ. Before God. And living in reality. 
of that identity. That's what he's saying. So as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3, he says this, listen, but sexual immorality is just one example. And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. It, may, it should have no place in your life. Why? As is proper among saints. You are saints aren't to live as if you haven't been consecrated to God. As if he hasn't set you apart to obey him, to follow him, to live for him. You are to live as his people, his special people. He is holy, therefore we are to be holy, set apart for God, obeying him. Do you guys get that? It's big. It's big, and that is a really big part of the Christian life. It is really a life of faith. It is really a life of believing what the Scriptures say to be true about you and me who are in Jesus Christ. I am a saint, not because of my own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because my sins have been cleansed, because God has chosen me and set me apart for Him to be His possession that I might live for Him and Him alone. Now, believing that, I act and think and react to life differently. See, Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. I can't wait to get there. It's going to take too long, I know. But in Romans 6, 11 through 13, he's talking about, listen, you are dead to sin. You must now consider yourself, reckon yourself, believe it to be true, that sin no longer has power over you. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, present your members, your body as instruments for righteousness to God. No longer as instruments of unrighteousness. That's what you did before. But now use your body, your mind, your heart, your will, your very breath, your lips, your tongue as instruments in the hands of Almighty God for His righteousness. And you can do that, beloved, because you're dead to sin. But you've got to believe it. Okay? You've got to believe it. Satan will tell you other things. He will tell you, you're not dead to sin. It owns you. And you tell him the scriptures. Your own flesh will tell you, you're not a saint. Please. You're disgusting. And you will tell your flesh the scriptures. I have been called a saint by God. I have been given this position. And now by his strength and his power, I will live in light of who I really am. Of who I really am in Christ. That is how we achieve victory in the Christian life, beloved. It's not through some magic. It's through some potions. Through some magic prayer. It is through seeing the scriptures hearing the scriptures, believing the scriptures, and repenting when you don't believe the scriptures, and going back to the scriptures, and believing what they say. It is a life lived by faith. All right. So after he identified his Christian readers in Rome, he gives them this salutation, a formal greeting. Okay, that's all it is. A formal greeting, salutation, which is also found in similar form in all of Paul's other letters. It's found, so we see it here in verse 7 at the end. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look at all of Paul's letters. Something very similar to that is said. This is just the standard way. Here I'm the writer. I'm going to identify my readers. And here's a greeting to you. Now we could say more about this. But basically Paul is expressing his desire through this salutation, through this greeting, that the readers would be blessed with even more of God's grace, which we talked about. Grace simply means his unmerited favor towards sinners in the context of Scripture. Unmerited favor towards sinners, his loving kindness towards those who don't deserve it. That's us. That's us. That's us, guys. He also, Paul says, desires his readers to have peace or or to be at peace, which we'll see in Romans is not really the idea of a of a. When you think of peace, maybe you're thinking, that's a nice day without the kids, okay? Peace, right? Something like that, or, or no work, or on a beach, palm trees swaying in the background, water coming up to my feet, peace, okay? 
That is not what he's, that's what you may think, but that's not what he's wishing upon his, his readers. Rather, in, in Paul's thinking, he'll get to this, it's a state of knowing, it's a state of knowing because of our saving relationship with Jesus Christ, here it is, that all is well between us and God. Peace. I was under the wrath of God. I was deserving of condemnation. But now through Christ I have been reconciled to Him. I am at peace with my Creator. That's what Paul desires, that they would know that more fully. Peace. Okay? And we'll see that when we get to Romans 5, 1, verses following. Okay, now, first point. First point. That's why we're only going to do one because of all that stuff that we had to go through and what I believe was important is giving of thanks for others. Chapter 1, verse 8. Look back at the text. Paul says, first, I thank my God. Just a very simple statement. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, Paul began his sentence here with the word first. Did you see that in the text? The word first. It's as if he's going to make a list or additional points, like a first, second, third, but you don't ever see that in the text. You don't see second and third. So it would be best to understand Paul's use of the word first in this sentence as Paul simply saying this, listen, I must begin by telling you how I thank God. That's really what he's saying. I got to start this way by telling you how I thank God. So the first thing Paul wants them to know is that he gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ because that's the only way we can have access to God, really, through Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing he does. But but why, look back at the text, why does he give thanks for them? Why is he doing this? And he says it's because of their faith, of their faith. Let Let me help you understand, pull that word apart a little bit. It's because of their belief in, love for, and service for, or to, Jesus Christ. Their belief in, and love for, and service to, Jesus Christ. And it's because of that, and that being spoken about in all the world, that's what the text says, that Paul is giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Now, all the world, that phrase, that's hyperbole. We've talked about that word before, hyperbole. That is just a deliberate and obvious exaggeration or use of speech, exaggerated speech, to, to make an effect. Okay, So, in other words, Paul is saying, listen, he was aware of the fact that in many different places on the earth, and Paul had traveled quite a bit, in many different places, the Christian faith, their belief in, love for, and service to Jesus Christ, those in Rome, was something that was being proclaimed or talked about. And for that, God, Paul, was giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ. You with me? That's the verse, very simple. Now listen. The giving of thanks to God for others, faith specifically, not just in a general way, but specifically for their faith, their Christian faith, was not something that Paul only did for the Christians in Rome. This is is not like unique where we only see this one time in the New Testament in this letter, but it was something that Paul did repeatedly for all Christians. In other words, hear me now, this is important, it was the habit or pattern of his life to give thanks to God for others, specifically what God was doing in their life. It was the habit or pattern of his life. I want to show you that. Real quickly, you don't have to turn there. You can just pop up on the screen or write these down. You can look at them later. For instance, 1 Corinthians 1.4. Here is how he starts his letters to different churches. To the church in Corinth. After he's identified himself, identified the readers, guess what? Here he is again. I give thanks to my God always for who? You. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. How about another one? Philippians 1. Verses 3 through 5. Here he is again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, from the first time you heard the gospel, you were exposed to the gospel, I came into your life, and until now, you have been partnered with me in the gospel, in providing support, prayer support and resources, and providing support in the gospel, in preaching Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Colossians 1, 3 through 4. We, here he's referring to likely himself and Timothy, Always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. How about another one? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You starting to see a pattern? You see the pattern? I hope you see it. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. So, here's, so we've gone to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Thessalonica. Again and again. Christians in different locations... Here he says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's cool. That's cool. Philemon, chapter, well, Philemon, verses 4 through 5. I thank my God always. Now he's speaking specifically of Philemon. When I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The theme, stay with me. Terry, that was for you, your comment yesterday. Stay with me. The theme that runs throughout all these verses we just looked at is the giving of thanks to God for the gracious work of God in other people's lives. Okay? Stay with me. The theme we see is the giving of thanks to God for the gracious work of God in other people's lives. So, for instance, let me just repeat it back to you. This is why he's giving thanks. Hey, I give thanks because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I give thanks because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Now listen, I I just got to point this out. Remember I told you he was saying the partnership in the gospel, the partnership in the gospel. He's talking about the fact that the Philippians partnered with Paul, providing him support in the preaching of the gospel. Okay? When we get to Philippians 4, because you, you might walk away from that going, well, he's thankful because he got help. Maybe that's what it's about. Nope, it is not. Philippians chapter 4, at the end, he's talking about their gift, giving to him. He says in verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. He's just giving them praise. He says, not that I seek the gift. It's not that I'm looking for you to do that. But he says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He says, I seek the profit that's going to accrue to your account because you are exercising your faith by being a partner in the gospel. I seek your benefit. That's why I seek your help in the gospel. You get that? Do you get what he's saying? I'm not not seeking my own help. I am seeking your benefit. I'm not seeking my benefit. I am seeking yours. When you engage by being conformed to the image of Christ, which includes being a partner in the gospel of Christ, you will benefit. And Paul's saying, that's what I want for you guys. That's what he's saying. Colossians, your faith. These are the things he's excited about. Your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Thessalonians, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians, your faith that is growing abundantly in the love of every one of you for one another that is increasing, not, not decreasing, 
not staying the same, but increasing. I'm excited, he says. And Philemon, your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And now we come right back to where we are, the book of Romans, where Paul says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In all the world. Listen, beloved. Let me add something here. In the case of Romans, Paul didn't even know these people personally. Okay? He didn't know them. He he couldn't put a picture with the face. He had never visited Rome yet. But he was still giving thanks to God for these strangers, Christian strangers, for these strangers. Specifically for what God was doing in their lives. For the grace of God that was being manifested in their lives. He was happy and excited for them just as he had been for the many other Christians who were growing in their faith. Who were excelling in their faith. Okay? Now what that communicates to me. Why, do I, why did I spend so much time on verse 8? Well, it's part of a bigger chunk. But it's just the first snapshot of the Christ-likeness of Paul. And when we're, when we're understanding that God's purpose for us is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, here we have a model of that. And we can see what that looks like. Here it is. This is what all this communicates to me. Paul was a man that was not occupied with himself. He, he was a man who was not occupied with himself, but rather by the Spirit of God at work in his life, cooperating with that, he was being conformed to the image of Christ. He was a selfless man. Not a perfect man. That's impossible. But a selfless man. This was the pattern of his life. This was the direction of his life. This was the, his character. You could look at Paul and go, selfless. Selfless. And that's demonstrating the fact that he sincerely cared for others. He specifically cared for their spiritual growth and their success. Do you see that as we're reading through the passages? He got excited about that. And consequently, when he saw that happening in their life, he celebrated and rejoiced by giving thanks to God for the grace of God that he saw in other people's lives. Now, beloved, it might be worth mentioning at this point, maybe you don't know, that Paul's life as a Christian was anything but easy. In fact, it was filled with troubles, trials, and persecutions. And that's an understatement. He suffered greatly for his faith. Not because he was a a bad man or because he didn't obey the law. He suffered for being a Christian. And he was often abused, disrespected, and mistreated. You know how I know that? Because he tells us. So, in 2 Corinthians 11, just in case you haven't heard this, but I want you to hear this in light of his behavior. That we just read about in Romans and all of those passages. This giving of thanks for others. Here's Paul. Verse 24 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Five times. And this is just him in the context of defending himself before, before those who are trying to go after him and say he's not a real apostle. He says, okay. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. Okay, now, when he says dangers, he's talking about life and death dangers or some extreme abuse. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. He's talking about those who claim to be Christians. I have dangers from them as well. But they really aren't. They're claiming, but they really aren't. They're false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You got that? That's the life of Paul. Yet in spite of all of that, he did not turn inward and become consumed by his own problems and challenges, beloved. He did not which easily could have happened. Hey, would you have blamed Paul with all of that if he said, oh man, forget this. I got to focus on me and, and I got to get myself out of these messes. I can't, I don't got no time to be thinking about everyone else, being concerned about everyone else. You know what's going on in my life. Would you have blamed Paul? I don't think any one of us would have blamed Paul. I'd be like, I totally get that, Paul. I mean... 
Your life is messed up, bro. <laughs> Beloved, that easily could have happened. That easily could have happened to Paul. But instead, he continued to focus on others. And he continually gave thanks. In all of that, he's continually giving thanks for the good spiritual things that God was doing in others' lives. This man is selfless. This man is other-focused. This man is Christ-like. This man has had the work of God happen in his life. The Spirit has transformed him. Beloved, you and I, naturally, that is not us. Am I, not, am I speaking the truth right now? That is not naturally us. Hello. We are selfish. Selfless for Christ is a work of God through the Spirit in your life as He is conforming you to the image of Christ. And get this. We're almost done. At the end of that passage I just read you, after all that, here's what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 11, I read you 24 to 27, then in verse 20 he says, Apart from such external things. Do you know these external things? Being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, betrayed, abused. You know, apart from all that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern. One translation says anxiety. Of concern for all the churches. And then he says this. Who is weak? Without me being weak. You know what he's talking about? He's saying weak in their faith. I'm asking you a question. Who do you think is weak without it impacting me? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? He says, listen, I am broken. I am a broken man when Christians fall into sin. That's Paul. He's got all this other stuff going on, but he is so other-focused. He is so selfless. And when he, and because his, his eyes are fixed on others, and he sees something good in their life, like the, the advancement or the success of the gospel taking place in their life, their faith, being matured, being built up. He sees their love for the saints and their love for Jesus Christ. He sees their desire to participate in the gospel. He gets flat out fired up and he's given thanks to God for what he's doing in their life. This man is other-centered. That's what I'm trying to point out to you. We can just read by that, yeah, Paul, whatever. You give thanks for those, blah, 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 because the faith was proclaimed through all. It's so much more than that. This goes so much deeper to the heart of Paul, which has been transformed by Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God. Do you understand that? It's the same way you and I should be transformed. Paul was made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That should be the same for us. That should be our desire. Now, beloved, let me tell you quickly here in closing how messed up we can be. Okay? Here's just a few thoughts. I know you want to hear this. So, sometimes, instead of giving thanks to God for what he is doing in other Christians' lives, you know what we do? We envy them. Listen, I know this by experience. I'm not making this up. We envy them. We become jealous of them. Instead of getting excited about them, instead of, instead of giving praise to God because we're not other-centered, because we're self-centered, we don't see God maybe working as fast as we want Him to work in our life, we get frustrated. Why can't I be like that? Why can't those things be happening to me? Envy, jealousy, sin. We're messed up. Hey, instead of giving thanks for others, for what God's doing in their life, you know what we do sometimes? We complain about others. We're hypercritical of others. You know why? Because instead of looking for signs of God's grace in that other Christian's life, we're looking for anything that we can point out that makes us maybe feel a little bit better about ourselves. Oh, they're not that good. Look at that. Look how messed up they are. I feel pretty good now. Oh, man. Man, guys. We are a messed up lot. 
We are a messed up lot. If it were not for the grace of God. Listen, we do this not only in the church, we do this in our marriages. Oh my. Think about what I just said and apply it to your marriage. Think about it. We do this in our relationships with one another. Additionally, we are often so consumed with our own problems and challenges. The world is caving in on me. That's all we can see. It doesn't mean we don't have, I'm not saying we don't have problems and challenges, but we become consumed with that. That we can't possibly see what's going on in anybody else's life. So we're not giving thanks to God for what we can't, we're not even thinking about. It's not even on our radar. It's not on our radar. The only thing we think about is me, myself, and I, and all my stuff. Beloved, did you heard what I just read about Paul? Right? Tell me when you've had a worse day than that. Please. I mean, yes, some of our lives have been messed up. But read Paul. And this man was joyful, happy, confident. How? He was other-centered. He was Christ-focused, which made him other-centered. He was being conformed to the image of Christ, which made him other-centered. And in that, he found, he found great joy and confidence. Let me just ask you this question, because here's the question I asked myself and I was convicted. Is the giving of thanks to God for the grace of God in other people's lives a regular part of your life? Is it? Why or why not? That's the question for you this morning. Is it? Is it a part of your life? And if it isn't, that's a chance for you to examine your life and, and start to figure out why. What is going on? It's... It was modeled by Paul. Paul said, imitate me. And Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ was other-centered. He came to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He was focused on us, not himself. And uh, I don't really care attitude. You know, I, I don't care, Jeremy. I, don't, I got my own problems. I don't, wanna, I don't need to hear this. I came here to figure out how to fix my own problems. This is a problem if you're not doing it. If it's not a part of your life, it is a problem. It's the one you need to fix. See, we're trying to always fix all these other problems. Here's the one you need to fix. Be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And you won't fix that today. That's a lifelong process. But that's the one you and I need to work on on a regular basis. But if you don't, if you have, I don't really care attitude. That is, that is certainly not the attitude of Paul. Certainly not the attitude of Paul. And it was not his attitude because, as I've said, he was a man who was imitating Christ. He was a man who was being conformed to the image of God's Son, which was God's purpose for his life and for ours. You got that? Good. Let's pray. Father, we ask not for us, really, Father. We ask first and foremost for your glory, for your name's sake that you would work among us, your people, those who have been saved through the gracious act and work and sacrificial act that he would accomplish on the cross for our sins through your son, Jesus Christ, your people, those who are beloved by you, those who have been called your saints, Father. I ask that you work in our hearts as we move through this text. This is just one verse we looked at, but... It begins to kind of peel back the layers of who Paul really was. And just thinking through that, not that Paul's our idol father. He's not an idol to us. But the man was used by you. We're not, we're not focused on Paul. We're focused on what you did in Paul. What you did through him, how you changed him. That's why Paul says, imitate me. I'm nothing, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. As Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what Paul said. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what we see in this picture of Paul. We see Christ. Father, help us see that and then examine our own lives. That's what I'm asking. Would we just examine our lives and go, hey, that's not me, or that's not a part of my life. And then ask why. 
Ask why. And if that why leads to sin, if we see the sin, Father, may we repent. That's it. Repent, turn from it. And then look to your spirit who has given us strength, his strength to walk according to your way, to actually be selfless. We're not going to do it in our own strength. If if we turn to our own strength, Father, you know where that gets us. We know where that gets us. Nowhere fast. We are a selfish lot. But by your grace and by your strength, you are conforming us into the image of your Son. Father, may we cooperate with that. May we submit to that. May we make every effort to work toward that in relying upon the strength of your spirit in our life that we might look like your son. Knowing, Father, that is the best for us. For your glory, God. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.